0: The following podcast contains explicit
1: language. It's Monday, November 24th, 2014. From Slate, it's the gist. i might Mike Peska. Big news day. Big, big news day. <laughs> Hegel resigns. No, that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> Iran talks fail to meet the deadline, but it's been extended bigger than that. <laughs> Ferguson grand jury decision bigger still. Here it is. Mascots revealed for the 2016 Olympics. Sub-headline, one has a cabbage for a head. Joining me now is Seth Stevenson. He's Slate's senior mascot correspondent. Seth, lay out your bona fides, if you will. I've written
2: about mascots on multiple occasions, Mike. Uh, when the 2008 Fuwa, the five-headed Beijing mascots, were introduced, including Jingjing the panda, my favorite, mm-hmm. I wrote about that. I wrote about Quachi, the amiable stoner Sasquatch of the 2010 Vancouver Winter Olympics. Who could forget. I the wrote about Sasquatch. Wenlock and Mandeville. The eerie sort of like surveillance state camera-eyed yeah. mascots of the 2012 London Summer Olympics. Uh, you know, I've,
1: I've got some experience. I still I have, I have Wenlock and Mandeville stuck to my window as we speak. But will I have Oba and Iba or possibly Tibatuque and Esquindium? The, the names haven't been decided yet, and even if they are, they won't be pronounced that way. But describe what the Olympics mascot and the Paralympics mascot look like. The Rio de Janeiro Olympics mascot,
2: he looks like a cat, yeah. but he is apparently an amalgam of every animal to walk the terrain of Brazil, jammed together, and his special power is that he's stretchy. So <laughs> right. it's, a, it's imagined like monkeys and, and whatever sort of feline beasts, are, I don't
1: know, and but they can stretch, and they're cute, and they smile a lot. Right, so they're like every member of the Fantastic Four, plus some members of the X-Men. And the Paralympics guy... Just in a big asparagus head he 's vegetative matter manifested <laughs> in you know in like a, as a motile being i don 't understand what he is a multicolored tree like creature with orange gauntlets and lime green knee pads would that describe him sure he's like it 's like a dude with an afro, but the afro is is plant matter, yeah in the embodiment of the cat guy, is he everything that 's right and wrong with mascots mostly wrong I think he's mostly
2: right because here's okay. my theory about mascots. The the Olympics already have a powerful, wonderful symbol, which is the five rings symbolizing the five continents invented in the early 1900s, and it's like a beautiful metaphorical thing. It's great. That's all we really need. The mascots are for little kids and for merch. That's what they're there for. And that their only role is to be cute. And, you know, they should somehow represent the region. They should, they should be, uh, they should reflect critical regionalism, I believe is the design term. Okay. So they should somehow come out of the traditions of the region, but they should be cute, furry, huggable, merchable.
1: Yeah. But and, what about being all things to all people? I mean, like in, in the in the Russia games there were five different animals, in the Beijing games there were different animals. Sometimes they try to make all the animals be one animal.
2: That well, they've clearly done that here. Yeah, yeah. They made all the animals be one animal. I think that's fine. I mean, this is a universal the whole point of the Olympics is this universal global thing where, where we're trying to appeal to children all over the world. So there's I thought that was the problem with the London Olympics was their mascots were too strangely like British and quirky that like kids a kid in Thailand isn't gonna understand this strange like metal they're made of metal, like they, Mascots aren't supposed to be, that's really furry. And they had cameras for eyes, or these like terrifying, very British things that I felt did not really translate to the rest of the world. Whereas the stretchy super cat monkey,
1: who doesn't love a stretchy super cat monkey? Thank you, Seth. So on the show today, in the spiel, I deal with the mayor for life, in death, and we talk Turkey, including my case against epidermal epicureanism. But first, let's talk the Turkey of international diplomacy. (laughs) Today, Chuck Hagel resigns as the Secretary of Defense. The explanation was that his strategies failed. Failed in Afghanistan, failed in Iraq, failing against ISIS. But before the warriors even get a chance to fail, the diplomats get a crack at things. Diplomacy, since it's not war, is often painted as the realm of the weak. To the point where a country, or at least a country like the United States, if they have an enemy, it's thought best not to even have diplomatic relations with that enemy. Look at these talks with Iran. They're being held in Europe. There are no American ambassadors to Iran. And just two weeks ago, Americans were freed from North Korea, largely with the help of Sweden, a country that does have powers with the North Koreans. They serve as the protecting power. That's the phrase in diplomacy, because the United States and North Korea do not have relations. So I want to take a step back and maybe ask some kind of basic. All right. You might even think naive questions about international diplomacy. But what the heck? And joining me now is Jonah Blank, Senior Political Scientist at the RAND Corporation. He was, for a dozen years, the Foreign Policy Director on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He specialized in Asia. Hello, Jonah. How are you? How are you, Mike? I'm well. So here we have Sweden, and the phrase they used for what Sweden was, it's not just go-between, is the protecting power. I'll read it from the Sweden Abroad website. Sweden provides different services for a number of foreign countries in North Korea. In particular, Sweden functions as protective power for the United States Australia and Canada, including consular responsibilities for citizens. So if you're an American in trouble in North Korea, and North Korea is not particularly welcoming to Americans, and you have a problem, maybe you go through Sweden. What would be the huge harm in having an American embassy there? If Sweden's going to do good, why rely on the Swedes? Why not just have actual diplomatic relations with North Korea?
3: Well, it would be very awkward to have diplomatic relations with a country that you've got a very, very hostile relationship with. So much of what diplomats do every day is say nice things about the country they're in. They go from one cocktail party to another, talking about how great the relationship is with the host country. That gets really awkward for a country like North Korea, Syria, uh, Iran. But that's why the U.S. has diplomats in almost every country in the world. It's really a very small set where relations are so bad that you let
1: someone like Sweden take the ball. So doesn't Sweden, doesn't the Swedish ambassador feel put upon in the same way? They they don't like the North Koreans, do they? They don't like the North Koreans, but
3: Sweden and a few other countries have carved out a a diplomatic role for themselves as being the go-between, being everybody's good guy, everybody's honest broker. Sweden does this. uh, Norway does this. Switzerland does this. There are a few generally small countries whom nobody could hate, who perform a really valuable service for the larger countries
1: uh, whom other people sometimes don't like as much. Why is this in Sweden or Norway's interest?
3: Well, uh, you know, Sweden and Norway do so many good things around the world that a lot of people outside say what's up? What's the catch? Mm-hmm. Uh, why are you Scandinavians uh, such good guys all the time? What are you plotting? I think a lot of it is that uh, a lot of the Scandinavian identity in modern times has been tied up with being international good guys.
1: Wow. I thought I'd get some real politic there. <laughs> I well,
3: thought there'd be something to do with oil. Well, they, they are, of course, plotting to take over the world, but apart from that...
1: <laughs> um... The United States, countries of the West, consider it a snub to pull out diplomats. Sometimes that happens. They consider it a wag of the finger when they don't have diplomatic relationships with different countries. But what about those countries? What about pariah states or semi-pariah states? Does Iran care? They do
3: care. Every country... Sees it as a snub to have uh, someone else pull their diplomats out because that's about the strongest move you can make short of going to war. That's basically saying, you are such a bad player that we just don't even want to talk to you. And it works both ways. Uh, Iran pulls its diplomats from places as well. But you don't really want to be in a position of having the rest of the world cut you off unless you are a very unusual state. And North Korea is one of those states. North Korea has intentionally cut itself off from most of the rest of the world because it likes to maintain this, this fantasy world whereby it's the rest of the world that is a failure
1: rather than North Korea. When Nixon went to China, it was hailed as a brave move. I mean, it's become shorthand for someone of one political stripe doing something against hype that's brave, a Nixon to China moment. I think I'm probably of the persuasion that this sort of thing should happen more, that it's sort of a leap of faith, but what's the downside for not having diplomatic relations versus the downside for having them and maybe getting a little egg on my face? I I think the international community is maybe a little more conservative than I am. I mean, America's international community, not Norway's. What do you think?
3: I think that you have to be careful with the political capital you've got. As we've seen with the president in Myanmar right now, he's getting a lot of criticism on exactly those grounds. A few years ago, the U.S. did not have an ambassador in Myanmar. It had uh, a charge d'affaires keeping uh, a very skeleton crew in place just to deal with uh, very low-level consular uh, states, once you appoint an ambassador, that's a big change. And you can't really go back on that too easily. So a lot of the criticism that the president has gotten has been precisely on those grounds. Some of his critics are saying, you sent an ambassador back too quickly. You rewarded the Burmese junta before they really earned it. Whether that criticism is fair or not, it's important to uh, demonstrate exactly the reason that having an ambassador or not having one is such a powerful statement.
1: Maybe Americans don't focus on foreign policy until there's a conflagration, you know, sometimes when there's a disaster. But it does seem that the idea of diplomacy, things like Relations and ambassadors, I don't know, get treated a little bit like field position in football. Yeah, it's nice, but you really want to score. It's just small potatoes when it comes to the real stuff, like dropping a bomb. how How powerful is soft power, I guess, is my question.
3: Well, uh, it really depends on the circumstance and on what else is going on. It's not as dramatic as dropping a bomb. But one of the things that we're seeing in Syria right now is that uh, dropping a bomb doesn't necessarily do a whole lot. Days ago, there was a lot of talk that we had dropped a bomb that had killed the leader of the terrorist group, ISIL. We're finding today that it appears that it didn't actually kill him. He's just uh, put out some new audio tape threatening volcanoes of jihad. Now, is there a diplomatic solution that could get him? Well, there's none on the table right now, but here's a case where we had all the air power at our disposal and it did nothing.
1: Well, I don't know about volcanoes of jihad, but here offering earthquakes of insight was Jonah Blank of the Rand Corporation. Thank you so much, Jonah. Thank you. And I like that
3: earthquakes of insight. That's what I do.
1: Joining me now is Dan Pashman. He's the host of the Sporkful podcast distributed by WMYC. He's written uh, a great book called Eat More Better, How to Make Every Bite More Delicious, which is like a faux textbook, Dan, would you say?
4: It's a real textbook for a fake university. (laughs) There's some
1: fakeness about it, yeah. Here on The Gist, we aren't exactly broadcasters. We're more niche casters. And we don't usually do this, but this is the ultimate niche casting. This is a segment for one person, and the person is Andrea's grandmother. Here's why. Andrea explained to me. Andrea, can you get on the mic here?
0: Oh no! I got to pull up the recipe now. So you
1: just have to you just have to tell us the idea. Now your grandmother has an idea for turkey preparation that she thinks could take off. She just needs someone to give it their seal of approval. What's the history of uh, your grandmother's idea?
3: So about two years ago, my grandma read a turkey recipe from Jacques Pepin in the New York Times, and she got obsessed with this recipe because she believes she has altered it in a way that has perfected it, and she won't stop emailing Mark Bittman. <laughs>
1: Like Who's the somehow... food uh, critic of the Times? Yeah, like a yeah, food yeah, writer, writer
4: yeah, yeah. Yeah,
3: yeah. Actually, let's just call my grandma.
1: Oh, you want my recipe? Oh, I'm after, yeah, that's what everyone's after. Everyone's after your recipe. What I really want is the backstory of your recipe, and okay, then tell me your recipe.
0: I'll give you the backstory. Okay. Several years ago, at least two, in the Wednesday food pages of the New York Times, mm-hmm. probably two weeks before Thanksgiving... They published all kinds of standard Thanksgiving hoo-ha stuff. They had in a box, separate from the rest of the narrative, it was a very elaborate recipe Mm -hmm. befitting a French chef. I read it, and I thought, what a crock. Nobody's going to pay any attention to this, because it requires an enormous commercial pot into which you must put the bird and steam it in the big pot. I simplified the whole darn thing. Because I think everybody's got a roasting pan.
4: Mm-hmm. I mean, the steaming thing is interesting to me because my mother-in-law essentially also steams her turkey. She puts water and, and maybe some broth down in the pan and then covers it tightly and cooks it the whole way like that cover. So you don't get crispy skin and you don't get the same kind of browning on the mm-hmm. skin. But you do get a moist bird and it kind of falls apart a little bit, almost in, in, in the way, not to the same degree, but in the way that like good barbecue falls apart, you get yeah. a little bit of that effect. And so that is interesting to me. I will tell you that a few things I've learned. One is that pouring that liquid, if you have liquid in the bottom of your pan, pouring it back on top of the bird does not really get much more moisture into the bird. The, the, that, that liquid's not going inside your turkey.
1: At that point, the bird is full.
4: Right. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 but what it does do... And this is really what basting does. It doesn't add moisture into your turkey, but it does cool the surface temperature of the turkey. And because the surface is the area that's most likely to get overcooked, it may help to lower the temperature and therefore keep your more of an even cooking temperature throughout.
0: I usually uh, use a combination of broth and wine because I save the liquid and use it toward making the gravy later. Mm. Anyhow, you put this liquid in. You put the rack on. You put the birdie on the rack. Seal it either tightly with the cover if it goes over the bird or if not, with heavy foil. Mm -hmm. Tightly seal it. Put it on your stove. Turn on two burners because it's a big pan. Bring the water to a boil, and let this birdie steam for one half hour.
1: Half hour is all it takes. That's all it takes. And it makes the turkey not only flavorful, but moist?
0: No, no, no. Wait, wait, wait. Ah, 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 ah. Don't jump the gun. I'm sorry. Okay? Yes. When the pan cools down a little, you pour off all the liquid. Mm Mm-hmm. Not down the drain, hopefully. You know, save it, unless it's just been water. Okay. Then you can put in the cavity of the bird, not stuffing, per se, because I don't like stuffing in birds. Throw in an apple, an orange, uh, a a whole bunch of garlic cloves. Mm -hmm. That's kind of like sweetens and smells it up nicely. On top of the skin, anything that you would normally do. Then you roast this guy in a hot oven. Thank
1: you so much, Phyllis.
0: You're welcome.
4: The water, the steam is not very to any great degree going into the turkey. It's more just that it's because it's a moist heat instead of the dry heat that you get in an oven you're not going to lose as much moisture out of the turkey. And so that's why you may end up with a moister turkey. But it's not because the steam is going into the turkey. It's just because less moisture is going out of the turkey.
1: Is there necessarily a tension between the crispness of the skin and the moistness of the meat? Because I know where I stand on that. But can you have both?
4: You can have both, but you're right that it's very hard. I've only cooked a few whole turkeys even in, in my life. I, my wife and I just bought a house. We just started hosting Thanksgiving. In
1: order to cook a turkey. Yeah, that's like the, half what's the reason. what's why.
4: That's you, right. Yes. So, for the first two times I did a turkey, I was a briner. Brining is like you, you soak it in a salt water solution for a day or two, and it absorbs all this salt water and it softens the meat. It's like, it's like performance enhancing seasoning because you're like adding extra juice. But recently on The Sporkful, I interviewed Kenji Lopez-Alt, who's the food science guy from Sirius Eats. And he was telling me that he favors a dry rub, Mm -hmm. coat it with salt, and that will tenderize the meat and help it to retain some moisture without adding in all the water that you get from brining. And he also recommends that when you do the dry rub, when you you sprinkle the salt on the outside, if you mix the salt with baking powder— It will make the skin crispier. He recommends a ratio of for every two tablespoons of kosher salt, you would use one teaspoon of baking powder.
1: Okay, because to me, and you might not like this, but I I know you don't judge and it's how everyone wants to eat, but I'm not a skin on meat guy. Uh, I know you're saying you're giving up so much of the flavor. Like, I like just the meat itself, and I'd rather have moist meat than any amount of crisping or whatever in skin. In fact, I'll, I'll taste a little speck of that. I'm just not into eating the skin on a
4: bird. Not a skin and meat guy. Is yeah. that what it says in your mash.com profile? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's really it's been suppressing the number of hits I've got. So
4: you don't like the skin at all, or you just don't like it with the meat?
1: I take, no, I, I, if I'm going to eat it, I'll have it with the meat. Like, you know, the whole uh, Kentucky fried chicken, what do you like? Crispy, extra crispy. I don't love the skin on a chicken. I like taking the skin off and eating the meat. Even if it's crispy? I mean, that tastes better, but to me, no, I like the meat better.
4: So like when you eat, when you eat the mini drumstick of a, of a buffalo. Yeah,
1: no, that's too, that's too fine detailed. I can't, I can't. At that point, you have so little meat to work with.
4: Well, I, I don't know what to tell you, Mike. To me, I mean I I guess we're just, you know, different yeah. different strokes. I mean yeah. I, I feel like I love the fat. You need yeah. the fat in there. Yeah. Is it the Because some people don't like when it's sort of a little gelatinous. They don't like the fat that That's
1: true. Okay. I when when it's not extra crispy, when it's just chicken skin, I just do not want to eat that. I don't know if it's gelatinous. To me it's an unpleasing thing. When it's crispy, of course I like it, but you're gonna like anything that's deep fried. So I don't see that's I don't see why that's better than eating just deep fried bread, you know, which actually probably could be delicious. So I think it's pretty unhealthy for me. I'd rather eat a whole bunch of other things. And, you know, you talk about the space one has in the stomach. I'm thinking about psychologically. This is kind of an unhealthy thing that I don't love that much. So I'm just going to eat the meat.
4: Oh, see, what I do is that when I'm like cooking, let's say, chicken thighs, I'll finish them on broil. So Mm. you get some top heat going down and that crisps the skin that's sitting on top. So it does get crispy. Or like we had a family barbecue a few months ago, and I made a bunch of chicken thighs on the grill, and most of the people in my family all peeled off their skin and left it sitting on their plates. But what
1: they do with the chicken?
4: They ate the chicken.
1: No, I meant peeled off their skin.
4: Oh. (laughs) (laughs) I took... So I went around and took everyone's chicken skin and threw, just the skin, and threw them back on the grill uh-huh. until they all turned really crispy. And yeah. then I ate all the pieces oh, You skin. ate them? Then I oh ate God. everyone's chicken skin. It's, it's sort of like cannibalism. It's delicious. No, it's not cannibalism. It's chicken well, you re
1: Then you redistributed the skin, remembering Uncle Al had this piece of skin and Kimmy <laughs> had that piece of skin.
4: Wait a minute. I think I'm eating an Edna's no, skin. No, I ate them all. It was really just to protect my family.
1: I understand. <laughs> Taking the hit for everyone yeah. since 1970. <laughs> Dan Pashman is the host of the Sporkful, WNYC produced podcast. He is the author of Eat More, Better: How to Make Every Bite More Delicious. And Dan will be back to help us strategize. I hope to post that episode early. We're going to talk about what kind of cereal or toast to have before you leave for Grandma's house and everything in between. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> And now the spiel, the death of the mayor for life. If you know or knew of Marion Barry as a non-Washingtonian, what you probably knew of him was one thing. He smoked crack And one phrase. Here's the obit from NPR. During the arrest, a furious Barry kept muttering. That bleep was bitch. Bitch set me up. Meaning his unemployed model female companion, NBC nicely describes things this way.
0: He referred to her with an expletive saying,
1: she set me up. Can we get some actual broadcast outlet to lay the actual clip on us? Vice News, Howard Stern. All right, next best thing, C-SPAN. Language that our viewers may find objectionable. So pearls remain unclutched as broadcasters adhere to their dictum that you should never offend even the most sensitive member of the audience. The elision goes beyond a word that an octogenarian Rotarian might blanch at. It was the entire tenor of the Barry obit. Here is CNN talking to us as if we were about 11 years old.
4: He was often praised for creating jobs and also breaking racial boundaries.
0: And uh, like many, you know, his service was not without a little bit of drama in 1990.
1: CBS also echoed those claims about jobs. He delivered jobs to people, uh, people who had mortgages to pay. He delivered uh, uh, summer jobs to their children. In many instances, uh, it was the first job for those children, enabled them to establish their first bank accounts. Marion Barry did not lift an entire generation into the middle class. When Marion Barry was first elected in 1978, D.C.'s unemployment rate was on par with the national average. When he left in 1990, when he was convicted of drug use, entire neighborhoods were all but lost. When Barry was sworn in in 1978, there were fewer than 200 murders in the district. When he left office in 1990, that number was close to 500. Most of that is not because of Barry. But in his autobiography, Mayor for Life, Barry admits that his alcohol and drug use was rampant in his second term and a full-blown addiction by the time he was sworn in for a third. And he went to jail, came out, got elected again for the fourth. Now, Marion Barry absolutely deserves credit for his early days as a mayor, and especially before that as a civil rights pioneer. Kevin Merida of the Washington Post wrote about Barry in 1999 at the end of his fourth and final term as mayor. Quote, it's because the mayor is an unusual blend of crude and smooth, street and sweet, kenty cloth and pinstripe. And with a record at that time of 17 and 1, and he would go on to win later elections to the DC City Council. Marion Barry was a very good politician. He was good at connecting with people, but he was also good at establishing a machine, and that machine was fueled by awarding goodies to supporters. Those jobs that he's given credit for, the city could not afford all the salaries. At one point during Barry's tenure, no one even knew how many employees were on the books. So if you want to call Marion Barry complex, yes. If you want to say the bitch set me up doesn't tell the full picture of the man, absolutely. But don't use doesn't tell the full picture as a stand-in for good steward of the public trust. Marion Barry was a civil rights pioneer, he was a charismatic leader, he was a charmer, he was an addict, he was an election day success story, and in many ways he was a failed leader. You might have enjoyed getting to know him anew in an obituary, but for the large majority of his 16 years leading Washington, you would want a different mayor. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, the producer of Slate Gist, combines the agility of the cat, the sway of the primate, and the lip-syncing ability of the three-banded armadillo. With just in turn Claire Tennesketter, you get a keen sense of smell. She can sniff out exciting adventures. Joe Meyer, managing producer of Slate Podcasts, is a fusion of Brazil's incredibly diverse plant life. His hair is made of tropical foliage, and he's transforming all the time like plants are always moving, growing toward the sun and overcoming obstacles. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, sleeps on a water lily on a lake in a forest. He is hardly ever seen eating. Some say he needs only photosynthesis. You can subscribe on iTunes, give us a listen on Stitcher. Our daily email can be signed up for at slate.com slash gist email. If you want to know when the show is up, download the app Yo, subscribe to podcast, and Yo will let you know. We're on facebook.com slash slate gist. There, we ask for contributions to the Marion Barry file, which outlet said bitch set me up, which said bleep set me up, who were the cowards, who were the brave. Email us at thegist at slate.com. I, Mike Pasca, combine a super stretchy ability, incredible hearing, and empowered by the love of children throughout the world. A love that is known in the local language as far-fetched or contrary to fact. Thanks for listening.